Welcome to this lung cancer edition of Meet the Professors. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. As with all of these programs, we gathered a group of practicing medical oncologists who presented real but de-identified cases from their practices to a faculty of clinical investigators. In this case, Drs. Tom Lynch, Tony Greco, Ed Kim, and Alan Sandler, all of whom had participated in a lung cancer think tank the day before this meeting. To begin, Dr. Kenneth Ng presents a case to Drs. Lynch and Greco. This is a 51-year-old woman, never a smoker. She's an artist. She was diagnosed with localized non-small cell lung cancer. She was referred after her curative surgery to see me for adjuvant therapy. Based on the pathology, she has 2B disease with a 3.5-centimeter anocarcinoma. It was a mixed subtype. TTF-1 positive. She underwent a right upper lobectomy. Vascular invasion was positive, and there was also tumor involving the visceral pleura. So she was T2N1, 2 out of 10 peribronchial lymph nodes positive. We routinely, after curative surgery in a situation like this, do EGFR mutational status, and her status was positive for exon 21 l 85 l mutation. Exxon 19 was negative. I just uh, mentioned that Dr. Ng had trained at or was part of Memorial's lung program, and you're still part of Memorial right. explaining why the mutation status was obtained. Can you talk a little bit more about this woman, a non-smoker who gets lung cancer, what her reaction was and what her family situation was? Again, you know, by the time I saw her, she has undergone surgery already. So I think that her initial period of reaction to her diagnosis was something that she was probably in shock. And, but by the time I saw her, she was sort of more at the acceptance phase. And after surgery, she knew that despite her surgery, there was probably a 50-50% chance of the cancer coming back. She was grateful that she had undergone surgery for cure. But again, she was willing to do what she can to decrease her risk for recurrence. And what was her ethnic racial background? Caucasian. What kind of work did she do? You said she was an artist. What was she actually doing? She is an artistic type, I think graphic design. And what's her family situation? She has a long-term live-in boyfriend, common-law type of husband. Her initial visit, he came as well to discuss the rationale for further therapy. Children? No. Tom, so how would you think through this situation? I think in a situation like this, she clearly has an indication for adjuvant chemotherapy, and I would treat this patient with four cycles of a cisplatin-based regimen. I think the big question this brings up is, should this patient get adjuvant Tarceva after they receive the adjuvant chemotherapy? And we have a clinical trial, which is opening hopefully very soon at MGH Brigham and Dana-Farber, looking at giving adjuvant Tarceva to patients who have exon 21 point mutations and exon 19 deletions. And that trial will hopefully be open soon, and a patient like this would be a great candidate for that. What's the design in terms of integration with the chemo? So patients get sequenced from their surgical specimen. They get chemo first. Once they've fully recovered from chemo, they then start the Tarceva. So it's 
not given concurrently with chemotherapy. It's given after chemotherapy because we've proven chemotherapy has benefit in these patients and we want to make sure they get their full chemotherapy in. And how long are they going to get the Two years. And how two years was picked is completely arbitrary. And to be honest with you, who are breast cancer mavens, it probably was based on the fact that tamoxifen started off as a two-year regimen. And maybe if it works, we'll compare five versus two. Well, it actually started as one, incidentally. But it started as one? Okay. It started as one. It started as one. It, one, to two. it actually worked as one, believe it, worked it or not. So before we go on to the question of non-protocol or lotnib, what other clinical trials would be open to a patient like this? So there are trials being done at many centers around the country looking at using EGFR-TKIs with chemotherapy. This patient would be eligible for Radiant, which is a large trial which is being done looking at adjuvant or lotnib after chemotherapy versus placebo in patients who are either EGFR fish positive. And if your patient has an exon 21 point mutation, she's probably fish positive for having extra copies of the gene, although that's not completely 100%. But the second way she would get onto radian is that she almost certainly is EGFR staining positive, immunoperoxidase positive. So she could go on to the radian study as well. Good trial, international study. Same basic strategy. Too. Same basic strategy, looking at whether or not adjuvant or lotinib improves outcome. My concern about radian is just that There'll be very few people like your patient on radiant because most patients will be EGFR immunoperoxidase positive, not mutation or fish positive. So it becomes a little bit dicey in terms of how well they would benefit. Now, was your patient out there on the internet? Did she know about mutations or is she just saying, just tell me what to do? Being an artist, I think that globally she is interested in her care and her diagnosis, but at the same time, she doesn't ask very detail-oriented type of questions. She obviously knows about her mutational status, and we had discussed all the different options. So, Tom, she's not eligible for any study. What would you do? So the difficult thing here is, and again, you'll find few people as enthusiastic about treating mutation-positive patients than I am. I still would not treat this patient off protocol with Tarceva. And the reason I give pause to that is intergroup 0023. Now, granted, that was a different population. It was a group of patients that got chemoradiotherapy, followed by adjuvant gefitinib. But there is no doubt that the survival of the group of patients who got gefitinib was clearly worse than the group of patients who didn't in an unselected group of patients. So I think that before we do this routinely, I think we need clinical trial data to at least tell us that safety-wise, we're not going to be impairing outcome for our patients. So in this setting, I think the information is very helpful. I think you can tell the patient that she likely has a better prognosis because of this. And what I've been doing in my practice, I've been obtaining the information keeping that information, giving them the regimen chemotherapy, and moving on. I would not give this person radiotherapy because they did not have N2 nodes. N1 nodes, I would not radiate. Before I go into Tony, just to pick up on what you're saying about O023, what were your thoughts about that? Well, I think the difficult thing is, is that if you look at the curves from 0023, they are dramatically different. If we were in the position of having it the other way around where the curves are positive, we'd be endorsing this as being the most dramatic thing we've done in stage three disease in ages. So personally, I think that, yes, I can't explain why gefitinib caused a worse outcome, but the data is what data is, and I'm very concerned. There's other reasons you could imagine that perhaps in wild-type patients who don't have mutations, shutting down EGFR allows other pathways to more easily signal to cells. There are some mechanistic reasons that people have explained why 0023 may have caused inferior outcome. It may be that subtly people who get chemoradiotherapy have increased rates of pulmonary compromise, and while most people have said it's actually tumor recurrence that's caused the increased death, perhaps there is 
is a toxicity issue that's just not being seen in a relatively small study. And just one more point, because I just remember I haven't asked you my annual question that I ask you at every one of these think tanks. Tom has always been my co-chair, and I always ask him this question. I forgot to ask him this year, which is essentially, if you were this patient, what would you do? And you couldn't go on a study. So if I was this patient and I couldn't go on a study, I would, if I was this patient and couldn't go on a study, I would probably take her a lot in the... <laughs> yeah, really. Well, that's, very con- that's the same answer you've given now for, I think, three or okay. four years. Okay, so, Tony. I'm glad Tom gave an honest answer there at the end because he's responsible for actually helping define a molecular aspect of lung cancer that's different, particularly in these non-smokers, but it may overlap into smokers. This is a different disease, in my opinion. And he's partly responsible for identifying that. And I have a dilemma here, too. I certainly would give her adjuvant chemotherapy. That's been proven. I would do that. But I strongly feel at this moment in time, based on the data that Tom actually helped generate, others are generating it now, that this is an ideal candidate. This woman only has about a 40% chance of cure at best to receive a drug that's very likely to help her in this setting. Do I know it? No. Am I worried about the study Tom mentioned? I'm not worried so much about that. He's being overcautious, in my opinion, of course, about that study. First of all, it was an unenriched population of patients with unresectable disease. Most of them, and he mentioned they were different. The other thing is, by the time they got randomized, the total number of patients in that trial was relatively small. They got gefitinib versus placebo. In my view, there was at least a 1 in 10 chance one in 10, that that was a statistical quirk. That could have been true if it was the other way around. And the study was relatively small. When you have the kind of molecular information you have here, I have to go out on a limb and say I would give her Tarceva after the adjuvant chemotherapy. Because the dilemma is the study may never be done that Tom needs to PI. It's very important so we can have proof eventually. But I would go out on the limb based on extrapolation and understanding Do you feel strongly enough that you would be uncomfortable offering her a trial that randomized between erlotinib and not? That's the dilemma. I would say yes, which is a shame because what that means is that trial may never get done. But when you look at the results of advanced disease, no one can tell you more than Tom with erlotinib in advanced disease who have these mutations. To me, it's remarkable. The median survival in some of the series is out to more than 15 months, close to 20 months. Median survivals in advanced disease with a single agent. In the adjuvant setting, that could translate out into a remarkable effect. Having said all that, I haven't ignored what Tom's caution is about the NIH study with Jafitinib in the unenriched population of unresectable patients. But I just I discount that as being very important. I just got to tease one more thing out of you, Tom, which is would you go in a study randomizing between erlotinib and placebo? I like the design of our study because there's no randomization with her lot in placebo. If I'm willing to not treat this person off protocol, I think it's fine to put this person on a study such as Radiant that randomizes. I do think that's okay. Would you go on Radiant yourself? I would not go on Radiant myself. Quick question for Ken. So we're enthusiastic about these mutations, but there are other mutations that degrade the benefit from erlotinib, like the RAS mutations that Vince was talking about. So you're in memorial land. Do you do that? We routinely test RAS as well as the EGFO mutations. What was her test for RAS? It was negative. It should be negative because they're mutually exclusive, yeah. pretty much mutually it was exclusive negative. populations. Where are we right now in terms of understanding what's going on with these patients, Tom? So 
the big news this year is we're understanding much more about resistance. So we know these patients, as Tony points out, have incredibly great early responses. And Alicia Sequest from our institution presented data at ASCO that showed a response rate of greater than 60% with a median time to progression of 12 months and almost two-year median survival in this group patients. The problem is they do relapse. And what we're learning now is mechanisms of relapse. And again, this work has been done at MGH, Memorial Sloan Kettering, and Dana-Farber as being the three places that have probably contributed the most in terms of understanding this resistance. But we know that there's secondary mutations similar to the secondary mutations in GIST that makes you resistant to Gleevec. And in this setting, we know the T790M mutation probably accounts for about half of the resistance. But this year, we learned that CMET amplification, that through another activated oncogene system, Tumors that have CMET amplification are also resistant. So we had a patient treated at the U.S. oncology practice by Alex Spira in suburban Washington. He treated a young man with an exon 19 deletion who progressed right through. We didn't understand why. We went back and looked at his primary tumor. He had CMET amplification. So the biggest development in mutations is understanding resistance. And the good news is we have drugs that target CMET. There's three companies that have CMET inhibitors, and there are probably five compounds which work against T790M. So I think what's going to happen in mutation-positive lung cancer is the same thing that's happening in AIDS, the same thing that's happening in TB, cocktails of drugs. And my prediction is that in four years or so, we will be giving people three-drug therapy up front something which is going to get T790M, something which gets CMET, something which gets the underlying EGFR, and that will be the approach we'll have to try to prevent resistance from emerging. Now these are going to be in never smokers? And this will be in the group of patients with identified mutations, most of which in the United States are never smokers, but there 2% of smokers can have mutations as well. Why do these mutations result in response to agents like erlotinib? That's a great question. We know why erlotinib works particularly well against mutations because the EGFR-mutated patients probably have relatively simpler cancers, same way that GIST and CML are relatively simple cancers, and there tends to be one oncogene, which the tumor is addicted to. And so we believe that in the EGFR-mutated cancers, that these cancers are addicted to the EGFR signaling. And when you turn off EGFR signaling, that cell really has no other pathways, whereas these RAS mutated lung cancers have incredibly complex genetics. And, you know, you inhibit one pathway and you've got 16 other activated pathways that these tumors can use. So I think it's probably because similar to CML and similar to GIST, we have a different type of biology. I just want to add, I think that this is evolving now to the point where I soon see it happening that erlotinib, Tarceva, drugs like this, TKI inhibitors that block epidermal growth factor receptors, will be used in selected patients with the targets and not in the patients without the targets. I actually practice that way now. In other words, a heavy smoker who does not have a mutation, and I often get fish testing, I know there are some controversies, who's negative. I don't use Tarceva on. Ever? Ever. I mean, they die and never get Tarceva? Well, yeah, I mean, because they're going to die anyway. But again, I don't use tamoxifen in estrogen receptor negative patients. I know we're not there quite yet, but I think we're getting there fast. And part of it is because of work Tom's doing and others like him. Now, I mean, we clearly know that people who are smokers and who don't have the mutation respond to agents like erlotinib, correct, Tom? I don't know that we know Well, let me ask Tom. There are some. 
there are some rare patients, and there are some rare patients with estrogen receptor negative tumors who have responses to tamoxifen. I'm not so sure. I think the ER thing has gotten much more worked out at this point, but I'm not clear. My understanding is that people with the wild-type lung cancer can have good, useful responses to erlotinib. Tony won't use it even to the point of second, third, fourth line, right, Tony? Well, we have other alternatives now. We have premetrexid, which is a well-tolerated drug. Now, granted, a performance status four patient, if you want to treat them with Tarceva, go at it. You know, some of my nurses have talked me into it, so I'm not saying I'm absolute here. But I would rather use Olympta in a patient who does not fit the criteria for being a... Sure, but they're going to progress. Well, but they're all going to progress. Of course they're going to progress. So, Tom, what do we know about responses to wild-type lung cancer to agents like erlotinib? I think we don't understand anything about why the occasional wild-type patient will respond. And the other question that begs is, you know, are we in a similar position with the ER and tamoxifen? Meaning, is it that we're just not measuring things correctly? And as it turns out that if we measure more accurately and we detect mutations, does it really turn out that really there aren't responses in mutation-negative patients. Now, this patient had an interesting thing happen because of Dr. Ng's interest, and I guess where he's working, and that she had curative surgery and was tested for a mutation. I don't think that happens much in the United States. Does it happen at your place, Tony? Not routinely. Do you think Some it should? Not, yes. I think, again, this is all evolving, but you can see how this can fit into patient management. We need validation. Tom's working on it. Others... We need validation, but this information now is important. I've never done a RAS mutation, but I'm thinking about it now. I've never sent it because of the implications. Would a KRAS mutation, do you know of any patient that's ever responded to Tarceva? I would actually agree with Tony that I think KRAS will be a very effective way of eliminating patients from treatment with Tarceva, and that's all because of the work done at Memorial Sloan Kettering. And how easy is it to get that assay done? Pretty easy. You can send it block to Genzyme. They will do RAS mutation testing. They'll do EGFR mutation testing. How long does it take to get the results back? Better and better. It's now down to about... RAS is quicker. RAS you can get back in probably about four or five days. EGFR you can get back certainly within 10 days to two weeks. Do you think that every patient in this country who's having curative surgery for non-small cells should have their tumors tested or just non-smokers or nobody? I think you can probably look at a group of non-smokers as being the ones to look at for EGFR mutations. I think RAS you probably want to look at in a broader group because you're looking to exclude those patients with RAS mutations. About 20% of patients will have RAS mutations and those will be smokers and non-smokers. It's sort of like testing every breast cancer for HER2 new. Only 20% will be positive. You exclude 80% of them from getting Herceptin. That's been validated, though. Although there was that interesting presentation by Dr. Paik at ASCO suggesting a response in HER2 negative. Who knows what that means, but it always makes... When you have a non-toxic therapy... But you see, with HER2 new testing, the controversy over HER2 new testing hasn't been resolved. What's the antibody to use? Oh, sure. What's the fish, the Supreme Court? No, he was talking about fish negative, IHC negative, the ones with a positive... There's controversy over the quality of the testing, the type of the testing there, but the concept, I think, is the same. I just think it's difficult to deny a patient a relatively non-toxic therapy when your other alternatives are pretty toxic and you're looking at a lethal disease, but this is the art of oncology, I guess. Tom, are you testing patients who are non-smokers? I mean, if a non-smoker comes and they have only adenocarcinoma, occasionally you get adenosquamous, you get all sorts of large cell or adeno NOS, whatever the hell you yeah. want to talk it. 
And then is there any evidence on the sensitivity or specificity or positive predictive value or negative predictive value on these things? Squamous tend not to have EGFR mutations. So there have been a couple of case reports. So we generally have not been testing squamous cells because squamous cells almost exclusively are in heavy smokers right. as well. Not always, but almost exclusively in heavy smokers. And we test pretty much everyone else. I think from a, since the CME program, just in terms of full disclosure, I'm part of 13 people at Dana-Farber and MGH that are partial patent holders on EGFR mutation testing. So I want to just make sure that that's understood. Not that I I have seen any kind of substantial income from this, but it could be perceived as a conflict of interest. We didn't follow up with Dr. Ng to find out what happened with this patient. I was happy that you didn't ask me, actually. Well, first of all, it was a no-brainer that she's a candidate for a platinum-containing doublet as adjuvant systemic chemotherapy, and she received four cycles of cisplatinum and vinarelbine. But even in the beginning, I was telling her about my plan to give her a lotinib as adjuvant therapy after the systemic chemotherapy. But of course, that was before ASCO, and I attended ASCO, and I was there also when you spoke about the caution about intergroup 0023 and the perhaps detrimental effects of gefitinib, and I was a little bit worried. And at the same time, during this period of time, when I was at ASCO, my colleague informed me that her post chemo CAT scan shows no recurrence but uh, bilateral PE incidental on CAT scan and the physician who was covering me had to put her on Coumadin and so I was coming back to finalize her PE situation and to talk to her about putting her on Tosiva but I finally decided that you just cannot negate the fact that she has a positive mutation and I was a little worried when you mentioned that you wouldn't do that off protocol, but when you finally said that you would do it that on your own, it made me feel better. It, because off protocol, I was worried a little bit, but I put myself in her position. And I said, I got to do for her what I would do for myself. So I said, I told her I would take it. I, and I, I'm recommending her to take it for two years. And has she started taking it, or has she decided what she's going to do? I gave her the prescription three weeks ago, and she's coming back next week to see me for follow-up. Interesting. One other point about this, and that is the issue of the skin toxicity of erlotinib and how you think this might play out in this sort of adjuvant-type situation in the trials, in the Reliant trial, et cetera. Tom, what's your take on this? We talk about hair loss as a cosmetic issue in the adjuvant setting that people learn to live with. What about skin problems? I think the skin problems are something that will have to be looked at. I think that many of these people are younger women who probably aren't thrilled with having the acneiform rash that you get. What we've done with skin is I think aggressive management of skin rash has helped a little bit. Certainly doesn't get rid of it, but insisting on the use of moisturizers early. Moisturizing skin is critical to helping ameliorate the effects. And I think a drug like doxycycline used twice a day probably is reasonable in anybody who shows any hint of rash. The other issue is the rash does burn out with time. And when you look six months later, it's usually not as intense as it was. But in many patients, it will be something which does require some dose response, meaning up to 5% of patients, you may actually have to adjust dose to be able to account for the rash. I don't think that there'll be many people who will come off of Tarsiva because they won't be able to tolerate the rash. I think that people will be pretty committed to it. I think particularly in the setting that you described after an informed discussion with the patient, I think she'll get through it and we'll stay on it. With the doxycycline, your nurse is making sure there's lots of sunscreen and hats and stay out of direct sunlight? Well, they should be out of sunscreen and hats anyway. So right. I, I think, but I agree with you, absolutely. Sun sensitizing effects are important, particularly if you're practicing in Miami. <laughs> Less of a problem in Boston. 
Tony, do you agree that if it turns out that erlotinib in selected patients does work in the adjuvant setting, that it won't be a major issue in terms of getting them through with skin rash? Yeah, I agree in general. I favor a shorter period of time on the drug. I think a year would be much more reasonable than two years. Also, maybe further data from studies on the skin management needs to be done. I've done it. I've used oxycycline, but I've also used low-dose Keflex. It seems to work, too. So I don't know that we know there's a magic antibiotic. But Absolutely no great data on this. Yeah. Tom, any thoughts about what the optimal duration might be in the adjuvant setting? There's no way I can argue with Tony over what the optimal duration is. Two years was chosen for Radiant. We chose two years. It is completely arbitrary. It is completely empirical. Six months might be fine. Five years might be better. Absolutely no data. 